of the IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, November 1st, 2013. This, this year is flying by. This week, episode 304 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon, everyone. Day, Jess. Uh, the Z-Man is away for the week. He'll be back next week. He's on the road. Uh, I believe he's in South America at this point. But anyway, also joining us later in the show will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can stream the show right from our website at iaqradio.com. And if you follow the link that says go to show, you can download shows to your MP3 player. And, of course, you can get the show from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com and last but not least please visit that iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right i'm going to do the trivia question this week for uh cliff he's on the road and uh do we have a i guess we should do a little intro music on this right all right Okay, as usual, the trivia question, the IAQ Radio trivia question is brought to us by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association. You can learn more about them at their website. That's trsca.org, triska.org. All right, today's IAQ Radio trivia question is going to be a quote. We want you to give us the name of the document that this quote comes from. The indoor air of occupied buildings typically contains higher concentrations and more types of bacteria than outdoor air. In non-manufacturing environments, the majority of bacteria in air are shed from human skin and respiratory tracts. 
What is that quote from? First one to text it in here or email it to joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get this week's prize. All right, let's turn it over. I'm going to go right back here. We're going to do the introduction for Dr. Wei Tang. Today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the recovery after Sandy and, and a lot about sampling and analysis and post-remediation verification. We've got Dr. Wei Tang. He is the founder and president and laboratory director of QLab in Matuchin, New Jersey. Dr. Tang, uh, oh, sorry, QLab is staffed with a team of experienced microbiologists trained by accomplished PhD microbiologists and PhD mycologists. They are committed to providing quality analysis and personal attention to their clients. Dr. Tang graduated from Cornell University with a master's and PhD degree, PhD degree in soil microbiology. He has spent over 20 years at premier laboratories focused on microbiological sampling and analysis methods for indoor environmental quality assessments. He is also the inventor of several advanced microbial sampling devices we'll be discussing later in the show. Dr. Tang currently serves on the IAQA, Indoor Air Quality Association, and IESO, Indoor Environmental Standards Organization Board of Directors. He is also the president of the IESO and the director of the Trenton Chapter of the Indoor Air Quality Association. We've got a little intro music for the folks in New Jersey and for Dr. Tang. Another nature dealt a harsh blow Coupled with the wrath of God The tides rose up And hell rained down from above Washed away our coastline Hundred thousand lost their homes Leaving many stranded and alone It may have knocked us down but not for long We're Jersey Strong Alright, Jersey Strong Let's see if we've got Dr. Tang on the line Hi everyone, this is Wei Tang Great to have you I've been trying to get this together for a while now Wei, it's great to have you with us uh, We've worked together in the past And I'm looking forward to today's interview um, you know, there was a lot of publicity about the number of mold problems that occurred after Sandy, and um, we've done a few shows after Sandy. We talked about cleaning and talked about cleaning after flooding, and we were at uh, actually did one from Dr. Johanning's bioaerosols conference in New Jersey. Here we go. We're a year later down the road, and I'm wondering from your perspective, um, you know, how, how are we doing with respect to the cleanup? I know you're not out there doing the cleaning, but you have a lot of clients that are, you know, working in that area. Yes. Um, the clean lab is still an ongoing um, process. You know, the, the public building, the commercial property has been uh, finished much quicker than residential. There are still lots of residential buildings still need uh, rebuild, and, and maybe some of them still need to be cleaned up because they have been pretty much abandoned. They've been locked up since... Um, Hurricane Sandy and the property owner just doesn't have the funds, the money, the manpower to do the proper cleanup and remediation and then rebuild. So there are still a lot of um, private you know, houses that still need um, cleaned up and rebuilt. 
And I'm wondering, was there, you deal with uh, samples on a daily basis, and I'm curious, was there any difference in the types and amounts of mold growing after Sandy as compared to other projects you see? Um, that's a good question. Um, actually, for Sandy uh, affected disaster area, there wasn't too much sampling was performed at that time. Most of the manpower and money was used in uh, clean up and rebuild. And uh, during that time, wasn't a lot of effort was put into study on, on what's you know been seen differently. So we don't see much sample coming from the disaster area during the, the uh, recovery process. That being said, I do hear some of my client comments on the, some of the issue that the, the salt water from the coastal flood instead of uh, the rainwater from a river, they, they feel like, okay, this is not a formal study, just some of the personal observation for my clients. So if you want a definite answer, we need to have a formal study. But they feel like the salt water may have a slower more growth in the residential or commercial building. Uh, on the material. Uh, one of the hypotheses we talk about is not proven, but uh, it, it might be the salt water wake up from, you know, the dry wall, and then uh, the water evaporates, but the salt remains. And the process, of course, you know, as the, the water keeps evaporating, more so, salt water will be soaked up the wall. So on a local area, you have, might have a material, building material, that has high salt concentration, higher, much higher than the salt water itself. So that's our hypothesis why some of the area that you might see are affected by water immediately, but you don't see the typical um, flooding from rainwater that you have more growth very quickly. That's, that's a pure observation in our hypothesis. It's not proven by any study. Uh, it seems like that's what we've heard, too, in the media reports that it just, it's taken a long time, and I, I think part of that was blamed on the fact that there was no electric, and, and it was a cold storm, so you had less heat afterwards, and people had a hard time drying down these buildings, but that's the first time I, I'd heard about um, your observation with respect to salt water, and, and so it took longer. How long do you... I mean, how long does it normally take after a water damage event to see mold growth in your experience? Well, you can see that, you know, one to two weeks, you can see a lot of mold growth from the, you know, fresh water. Uh, but for salt water, people feel like it might be a slower process. But, you know, if it's not properly dried, the moisture will, will accumulate, you know, will go to the whole building. They, they can because some of the building material in the building has higher moisture problem, not directly, you know, affected by the water, not, not, not water damage, but they have higher moisture. So uh, some part of the house might have zero fairy fungi growing after a long time. Okay, hmm. so that's something, if you use cultural method, you know, do air sampling or do on the surface, you might want to add uh, DG18 as one of the media that can zero feeding fungi. Those are the dry, loving fungi. They don't like lots of water, but they need to have a, they usually uh, grow better when there's a high moisture, um, 
high humidity in the air and uh, the building material is not directly affected by water, but due to you have too much water in the building and that wasn't properly dried up, so you would have this uh, high moisture, high humidity in the house. And when you you say it's a, you know typically one to two weeks, and that's been observation I've seen in the field as well, but a lot of the guidance documents say that you need to, in particular, EPA says dry within 24 to 48 hours to prevent mold growth. Um, are there types of mold that can grow as quickly as in a couple of days? Well, one to two weeks is when it becomes visually, you can see them, but at that time, you have millions of spores ah. on the surface, so of course you can see that, but you don't want to wait till that happens to you. I mean, so the EPS, 40 hours, I would say, 24 or 40 hours, you keep them dry, you know, you, you got to dry them first. And if, if you miss the timeline, you have more growth already. Even not visual, vis, visibly seen on a surface, you still can have half a million per square inch, you won't be able to see it of, uh, you know, spore. Hmm. I'm just curious, are, are your people, is it starting, you know, you said that immediately following the disaster the samples didn't come in as quickly as maybe we would think out here, you know, the, those of us that weren't involved as directly as you were. Has that changed recently? Are you starting to see more samples now? I mean, we're a year down the road. Um, are we starting to see more now, or is it still kind of slower than you expected? Um, it's still quite slow. Most of my clients, um, uh, some of them, don't like to get involved with uh, disaster-related uh, project like this. I, I think from the reason they told me is after you come in, a lot of things have been done wrong, and there's no way for the homeowner to correct that. It has been, you know, and there's no way for them to do further remediation. Uh, money-wise, they they lost a part of the the money to to. We build a building back, and now they they have more going inside because it wasn't dry properly. They they are in a difficult situation. I, I think we need to get some more funding for those people who cannot afford to properly um, clean up their house because of more more growth. Uh, many of my clients feel like you know they they have to come in, and not only they don't have the, the money to do testing, they don't have money to to clean up. And the company who did the job before has been long gone. Maybe even they are from out of state, so they have no way of holding them liable easily. Of course, there's always a, a way. But, so it's a difficult situation even after one year. Uh, for people, unless they are in a better financial finance situation, they will can afford proper testing and understand what part of the house is being affected, what needs to be cleaned up, what needs to be done properly. Otherwise, you know, it's still a difficult situation to do unless uh, they have the, the homeowner has the, the funding source. That's a great point. So a lot of the initial work that wasn't done, maybe not as well. I mean, I, I'm sure they got the muck out part done. You know, they, they tore out a lot of the porous materials, but then mm-hmm. they weren't able to dry it properly, so their money is gone, whatever money they had, whether it was their own or maybe some insurance money, although I understand there's still insurance money coming in. It's, it's been slow. But um, yeah. if they've already used all their money, then what? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, where do they go then? Uh, yeah, and you, you also mentioned this is a winter storm. You, this was a winter storm. So 
a lot of investigation could come from the uh, south region of the country. They they don't understand. They didn't understand this, and they use a humidifier without heating the house. And you know, below a certain degree, the the humidifier just not working. It's not you know remove remove the moisture from the air properly because the water is not being heat wasn't being heated at that time. You got to get heat in those buildings. That's for sure, and that's something I think uh, we've we've focused on a lot. And I know the industry's starting to really push that idea. And there's a lot of people out there using heat in general for drying. I, I think that's a big movement within the industry now. So I'm curious. You're further in. You're in uh, Edison area, and that's probably what 50 miles or so from the coast. Yes. Were you affected by this at all? Were your was your property uh, damaged at all? Um, there was some wind damage. Uh, our fence got knocked down, and uh, water was uh, water wasn't affected, but electricity was uh, off for more than a week, hmm. and that's the most of the damage we see because there wasn't significant amount of rainwater, so we didn't get any flooding in our area at all. Uh, I think that the area has the most damage on the coast that um, they have the property. Very close to sea level, the town without dunk, you know, those wide, you know, thin, you know, 20 feet high, 75 feet, 25 feet high and 75 feet wide. That's what they recommend to build the, the, the dunk uh, to between the houses and the, the ocean. And not every town has that. So we have learned now that the, the town has dunk, the protection. Uh, survive much better after a uh, storm like this. So they have been advocate a lot for the, the city, the town near the ocean, to have this mm-hmm. protection from natural disaster. Although there's been a resistance because it affects your ocean view. And, and pe- the reason people want to live you know, on an ocean bound property is because they can see the ocean. So there have been some, have been some resistance, but in terms of protect, protecting the property, that's the right, way, right thing to do. I'm curious, way they. Um, I, I know that the insurance rates for for flood insurance have have gone way up, and now they've redrawn. I believe they're done redrawing the flood zone maps, and, and a lot of these homeowners have have to have had to pick their homes up off the ground. And I know you're not on the ground in on the shore, but I'm curious, did that did those um, changes in the flood zone maps affect your insurance and your um, zoning as far in as Edison, New Jersey? Not here. We, we are far away from that area, and it's not affecting our uh, our insurance. But on the coast, uh, I, I'm sure there are people being affected greatly, and many people abandon their house because they cannot get federal funds from FEMA, state, or some other I forgot which stores that require you raise your house before they give the money to you, and they don't have money to rebuild. How do they expect them to have the money to to raise the house? And uh, you know, and th- that's a big big issue. So they there are some homes that have been abandoned, and and even on the news, I saw one house that was being raised. Um, I, I assume that not by the quality people. You know, the whole house, you know, kind of lost its footing and kind of not sitting on the right foundation, they, their rates can be high. Wow. So that, that's one thing that, you know, you also have to tell people to hire qualified people if you want to raise your house. 
Well, talking about qualified people, you, you own a lab that has been described as a, a boutique lab. I've heard that description, and I'm curious to you, what are your thoughts on that description? Do you welcome that description, or does that kind of not fully describe what your lab capabilities are? <laughs> well, uh, if you buy boutique lab, you mean that you know the lab, small laboratory has high-quality analysts, and it's supervised by, you know, people with my experience and education, you know, and I supervise them personally. And you have the lab director review and, you know, the whole project before and after being watched closely and we have, you know, very high attention for each project. We can know what client need to know to produce high-quality results. If that's what you by saying boutique laboratory, yeah, and I would take that as a compliment. <laughs> well, good, good. I think you should. And I'm, I'm curious when you, obviously, people try to evaluate a laboratory and determine what lab they're going to use. What types of questions do you suggest people ask the laboratory they are evaluating to determine if that's the right lab for them or not? Sure. Um, not only ask, but do a little bit investigation. You can go on LinkedIn, go to people's website. I think the most important thing is the, the credential of the lab director and make sure lab director is supervising the lab, you know, to sufficient procedure to make sure the quality is ensured. And the quality of the analyst, you know, the education, the training are also important. Of course, besides people, the methodology they use, and the device and the material are also important. You know, the, the laboratories only can analyze 100% of what you collect. So if the device, the sampling device, it's not good. Only collect 5% of material, and that's all the laboratory can analyze. You know, it doesn't matter how good it is. That's all we have. I'm curious, wait, what, what standard, like, for instance, that's part of the complaint I get is there are no... Oh, widely recognized standards mm-hmm. that that labs follow. What what standard do you suggest they follow as far as let's say spore trap analysis? Uh, ASTM has the standard. Uh, it's pretty good, but we can certainly do better than that because standard, you know, is set in a way that to allow most of the vendor of the people uh, performing analysis can perform. You know, they cannot set the standard so high that you know only ten ten percent of people can perform this. So that standard is a good place to start. Most of the laboratory with good qualifications should be able to follow the procedure. Of course, some laboratory can do better than that, and you certainly need to ask the laboratory. Um, that's something that you can benefit from in terms of data quality and getting the data you need for your investigation. Now. As far as um, laboratory sampling and, and sampling devices, I'd like to, I know you've over the years experimented with different sampling devices. You've invented a few. Let's start with um, tape lift sampling where you're, you're taking essentially a sticky tape. In some cases, you can just use clear scotch tape and um, you can take a sample on a surface, and then send it to the laboratory for, for examination. Why did you feel necessary to develop a what you call your gel tape? Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why you felt 
there was a need for a different type of sampling device with respect to tape samples. Certainly. Every device has its advantage and disadvantage. And from our analysis, uh, I know there are lots of commonly, you know, commercial-made tape that with some adhesive on a plastic slide, you can bend it, but it's still a very rigid. It's not 100% flexible. So uh, from what we see under microscope is you will see some area has a wood grain with small gloss on there. And next to that, it's nothing. And a little bit further to the right, you see a pattern again like this. What does that tell you is this kind of tape lifting device can work on flat, two-dimensional surfaces. If you have unfinished wood or the surface is not smooth, not flat, if you place such a device on the top, you only get the area that's higher than the surrounding area. In those lower areas, lower than the surrounding area, you wouldn't touch it at all. Uh, of course, you can use a scotch tape. Scotch tape is con- convenient to use, and you can you can get it from you know staples easily. But those kind of tape, they when they mount in, in the multimedia, they disintegrate. The, the the adhesive become cloudy very quickly, and it's not very clear. It's convenient to use. If you want to use a, those kind of tape lifting device, I suggest you use a, a industrial strength tape. The 100% optic, optically clear and adhesive won't be affected by the mounting media when we uh, prepare it for microscopy examination. So let's come to this uh, uh, 3D surface that you might have more growth, for example, like unfinished wood. You know, when you look at it, it's flat. But, you know, those wood grain, if you have more spot between the wood grain, you probably won't pick them up by using uh, a, a, a slight tape. Uh, for scotch tape, it's difficult unless you can use your fingernail to work it into the wood grain. That's mm-hmm. one way to do it if you don't have access to gel tape. But the gel tape has thickness of 0.5 millimeter. It's a hard gel. It's flexible. When you press down to a surface, it, it forms a, a good contour on the surface, even if it's not smooth. So from what the sample we have been see, seeing for years, we pick up the mold from the surface very well, regardless what type of material it is. The only disadvantage is uh, when it's very sticky, high, you know, it's high-tech, it's very tacky. So you have some uh, drywall or paint surface, the, the material on the surface is kind of loose. So the moguls, you probably will pick up a lot of material by using gel tape, uh, which doesn't create problem for the, the consultant. But when the laboratory received it, we had to spend a lot of time trying to scrape it off, although that's not impossible to do. It's just a little bit time-consuming. So there's like a, a, a little glob of gel on this particular. I've seen them. I haven't used them yet, but I'm gonna, I will try it. Um, and it's it's. It's much thicker. I've, I've noticed that. I'm curious um, about the ability to, to the the ability to see through it. It seems like that thickness might inhibit the ability to see through it. How does that? How do you handle that issue? Oh, not at all. It's 100. percent I cannot say 100. percent It's nearly um, up. It's transparent uh, optically. When we see under a microscope, there's no problem seeing through at all. It's even much better than the, the very thin. Scotch tape, 
because the adhesive material is resistant to the multimedia that laboratory usually use. But the, the you know the tape is done from staples. They are not made for this kind of purpose. So huh. they, you know, once you mount it, you have to look at it very quickly. Otherwise, they become cloudy uh, very quickly. And from the tape sampling, I talked to uh, Tasty. Um, you know Tasty? Yes. Uh, Baker? Yeah. He has he has good mycologist. He has training on that, so he um, um, look at the sample on the job site and like, on the microscope he brought to the job site. And one from what he tell me, when you do multiple tape leaves on the same surface, you will see different different kind of mold and different concentration. And that got me thinking. That's right. I mean, mold growth it's not homogeneous. You have different kind of mold growth on the surface, even in one area. And they might have different densities. You know, if it's covered by some dust, you you see a, a label of dust, but some might have higher density, some might have lower density. So I start telling my client, you have to collect three samples from one area. If you want to really know, uh, get a better picture, because if you take from one spot, one square inch, you could see the hot spot, you could see the cold spot, and you different kind of mold, you might see this one, but not see the other one. So from what we have been seeing, if you take three samples from the same location, it does tell more stories and show you a better picture. When you say three samples in the same location, at the same, let's take a piece of drywall. This is very common. I go in after a water damage, and there's drywall with something that appears to be mold growing on it. And I... What I've done in the past is I've taken a sample, let's say, six inches from the floor, another sample, say, two feet from the floor, another sample, say, four feet from the floor to to see if maybe there's a difference with respect to the amount of water that was available for the growth. Is that what you're talking about when you say three samples in the same area, or are you saying three samples right on the exact same spot? Probably not on the exact same spot, but same amount of water, you know, moisture, same type of material, same kind of, uh, if you want to take different locations being reported differently, that's another, it's like taking one sample, but in three locations. Uh, so I'm talking about in one sample that has same characteristic, you know, the water content, uh, but, you know, because I have, you know, a large area that you want to know, not just in one spot, You if you think that you Taking this one square inch, you might miss some information in some other one square inch. Then it's better to take three samples to be more representative. And you don't need to take one square inch, probably half an inch in each one will be worth sufficient. And so from your conversation, I want to emphasize, you know, the, the, the taking sample. And you know this already, but some audience, if, if you take sample from drywall, you usually must probably we get a lot on the other side of drywall. And, you know, when being with the remediation, it's important to know, you know they are more in the back. Yeah. And some some uh, remediation cut off the drywall, you know, two feet, four feet, and just right, at, right on the back of the drywall, you didn't cut. You know, sometimes you can very quickly take a sample and know how much hasn't been cleaned because on the outside, it looks, only up to two feet, maybe on the back of drywall, it go up much higher. You, you, you. Absolutely. Well, listen. Yeah, let's use your finger to, you know, wipe it a little to see what comes off. 
Dr. Tang, we've got to take a short break and thank our sponsors. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about mold sampling, but I really want to get into um, disaster restoration and, and, and bacteria and sampling mm -hmm. for clearance after disaster restoration. We'll be back in okay. 90 seconds with Dr. Wei Tang. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay. And we're back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Wei Tang. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about another invention of yours. I want to talk a little bit about um, tape lift. Or I'm sorry, uh, swabs. And um, you have developed what you call the sponge swab, uh, sweep swab. And, and that's how is that different from a standard clinical swab that we'll oftentimes see used for sampling uh, of mold and, and bacteria? All right. Um, the, the clinical swab, I, who I often refer to as the first generation mold swab, uh, in the beginning of, you know, when people start taking mold samples, of course, that's an available device that people have. You know, it, it's just the same swab when you go to uh, a doctor's office and they want to take a floor culture, so they stick a swab in there and get some culture. It's mostly designed for uh, present absent test. And the uh, handle is very long because, you know, when it's sticking to your floor, they, they, they don't want to poke you too hard. So it's flexible and long, uh, but which presents a challenge when you want to do more uh, sampling. You know, when you do remediation, you need to squat them really hard and, and uh, several times. And so by using a long and flexible uh, swap, uh, it, it, the collection efficiency is not so great. And uh, later on, uh, there was some second-generation swap, the uh, swap in a queue. I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, many laboratories provide them for their clients. Yes. So much better. They, they have shorter handle, so you can... You can swap a little bit harder, you know, you're not afraid of hurting the, the, the building material, so you can really swap a lot harder, 
and uh, roll it when you swap, please, and do sweet direction, you know, up and down, left and right, you know, diagonally, diagonally. So you can get a, a good uh, collection. The reason of doing that, you can try using a, a marker, a Sharpie marker, try to draw on one square inch. If you draw one direction, it's probably not going to co- cover the whole area. So microbiology, you know, has this way of you know, using swap that, you know, you do up and left and right, up and down, and diagonally, so you can get a good collection. And uh, but this, I, I have to, my comment on those two swaps is after you sampling, if you have buffer in a tube that hasn't been used, I suggest that uh, pour that out. Don't input in your swap. Like Joe, you mentioned that, you know, you've got to dry a house in 24 to 48 hours. Having that much liquid and you send it, you know, put it on a FedEx truck and shake it for 24 hours and send it to a lab, it wasn't, a, it's not the best idea. And when sometimes we, we see those swap, we look at under microscope, they are germination from a spore, a little bit gross, and it's yeast multiplying and the number will double and, 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 and more. So, so what you're uh, saying I, you shouldn't, you shouldn't put it back into that solution that's in the bottom of the bottle that you oftentimes find. Yeah, the two swap, not the clinical swap. The clinical swap, um, I don't think you can pour out the liquid. But the two swap usually come with uh, one meal, some has four meal of buffer. Now just pour it out. Get a small you know, plastic bag. Just pour it out. Don't don't dip it into the buffer. Uh, I've seen okay. it under microscope too much and it has more growth. And this, if you walk into your laboratory or drive into a laboratory right away and it process right away, it's probably not a big issue, but if you send it to FedEx and they don't get it till you know twenty four hours later, it's to just you know don't include the, the unused buffer. That you, if you haven't touched a buffer with any more sample, if you, you you take it out, take the swab out, you do assembling, and before you want to put it in, the buffer still clean. You know since it's more, it doesn't contain any more spore, any more biomass. Just dump it out and put it. Uh, tube back in and slowly tie. By the time the, the swab reach your lab, that will still be moist. Even a little bit dry, it's not going to kill the, the most spores. Since the surface is a sample, probably the surface is not as wet as your swab. So it should preserve the sample good enough without the one meal buffer. Okay. All right. And, and, and then, okay. Um, and the sweep swab uh, is what I refer to third generation of swab because those swabs. You know, you've seen that uh, it's like a Q-tip. It's very smooth and small, and lots of building material is not smooth. They have you know, unfinished wood or OSB. They have wood grain and, and, and surface that you it's difficult to, to get to. You know, if you try to clean a, a, a material like this, you wouldn't use a Q-tip to clean uh, a, a unfinished wood or OSB because it doesn't really... You know, at the point that you just push them around, they they don't pick up and they don't go down to the the lower area the, between the wood grain to pick up the spore. So I found those uh, nylon flock swab. They have a very tiny nylon you know nylon fibers sticking out of swab, like a you know, a little brush with very small short uh, brush uh, hair, and those you can kind of brushing the surface, and you do pick up a lot because of the tiny fiber sticking out, you know, so you, you get a lot, but um, it has been good 
I have been simple results from those sweep swap uh, or any nylon uh, flux swap you can use. But the, the point, uh, I haven't pointed out, one important thing is when you choose a swap, you have to use a swap with a buffer with no nutrient, okay, non-nutritive buffer. I've seen some swap, they have nutrient above, and by the time we receive them, you see too much more growth, and that's not the origin number that you you got from the service already. So make sure your buffer doesn't have any nutrient in there. Huh. All right, so sweet swap is good, but the capacity is still small because it's um, a little bit less than one inch long and maybe a little bit shorter for another um, sweet swap version. Uh, the, the capacity, the efficiency is good, but the capacity is still small. So yes. later on, I, I, I try to find a, a bigger swap and that has high capacity and high collision efficiency, then I uh, found those uh, sponge swaps. Like a, it's like a small piece of sponge and on a stick. You know, more than one inch long, probably half an inch wide. It does pick up a lot of debris, dust, and mold biomass at the same time. And you can sample a very large area, you know, up to 12 inch by 12 inch. You can still do it. One of my clients use it exclusively uh, for post-remediation because, you know, if you want to get a more representative sampling, you need to do at least, you know, 144 square inch, and you can do a composite of several different locations or in one area. It doesn't matter. But doing one square inch, it just, you know, people gradually to realize it's not very representative of a you know, big surface you just clean. So those are my, uh, my short... Um, description of that difference, you know, any question of... So you can do a 12 by 12 area, and then you send that in, and let's say we're doing a post-remediation verification, and I know Mike McGinnis talked about this on, on a show, and so now I've got a nice square foot, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm sampling a bigger area, I send that into the laboratory, and and are we doing a direct microscopic examination on that and then a culture or one or the other or both? Uh, you can do both or do either. Um, you can even do a viable count in 48 hours. Um, uh, the real exam, you know, usually turnaround time is 48 hours too, uh, but that covers viable and non-viable. It's more suitable for remediation, post-remediation, because if you use biocide, of course, you kill them and... Um, Lots of spore, non-viable spore, you won't be you won't be able to detect them using just the way microscope. I'm sorry, not just just the culture won't see the the, the dead spore. So direct microscopic examination is what I recommend, and you can process the swab just like doing culture. You know, you extract them, and uh, the the sponge really pick up a lot. You know, and, and extract them from the sponge. And then you do serial dilution, and then you can put them under microscope for each dilution, and you can count the number of spores in the high fee, which is also important. And you will know how much what's left behind by the remediation cool. And if you want to do culture, of course, you can wait seven days. But it's recommended when you do culture, so you know what 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 type of mold is left behind to do a uh, microscopy. Examination, the quantitative, the quantitative, they give you a good nice count and 
from our experience and from the experience of my client, usually the guideline is somewhere between a thousand and ten thousand. Okay, if it's below ten thousand, usually it's, it's, it's okay for residential and commercial area for hospital or people with uh, you know immunocompromised or have some other disease. Um, you might want to go lower, but for material for comes more than ten thousand per square inch, probably most people agree that. Not, not clean enough. You, you can do a better job. Between 1,000 and 10,000, that's where you... Depend on what type of mold the, the surface, what type of mold material is there, and how easy can it be cleaned, and whether you're going to use an encapsulant or not, and where it is, and um, how much money you have to do the further cleaning. By those factors, you decide where, where you want to set a, a, a criteria. So between one and ten thousand, that would be spores per square inch. Yes, that's most of the consultant we agree that below what a thousand, in most of the situation, is okay. Most of people can, most of the remediation company can can clean it to this number. Of course, sometimes you want to go lower if the the occupant has special need, and uh, about ten thousand, pretty much. Um, that's not a good job done by the, the reading. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious, Wei, when, let's say we do the um, sponge swab before they start a remediation. Let's, let's take a, I've got a concrete floor. I've got some uh, mold growing on drywall. I want to make sure they've cleaned the floor properly at the end because the drywall will be gone. They're going to remove the drywall, and I'm not going to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sponge that. So I want to make sure the floor is clean when I'm done. Um, let me ask this first. If I had a job like that or, or a normal, uh, or, or let's say an, an area where I was going to do a remediation, I know there was some mold growth, and I swabbed that floor. Now, there's probably not mold growing on that floor, but what kind of background levels would I expect to see in an area before it's even been cleaned? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the, the background area, the background is a, a tricky definition. I mean, you know, what, what's considered background in a, you know, in a Josie Shore uh, basement and what's considered a, a background in a, in a bedroom up on the hill. So I, I try to look at this as whether it's, Clean or not, instead of it's big one or, or not big one. It's the the crew, they I assume they they clean the floor after they they remove the the um the moldy sheet rock. Right. And just you know, just go by a, a standard like you know, if seventy five percent or ninety percent of contractor can clean this material down to this level, and all the people can be easily helped to this standard. Um, if you talk about what's background, what's not background, it's good to, the area people are difficult to agree on. But if you say, okay, we, we, we pay this amount of money for remediation coming to clean this, take out this drywall and clean all the surface, and if 90% or 85% can clean that down to less than 1,000 per square inch, that's the standard we can hold it for everybody. Because, I see. You know, that's, that's the easier way to go by. And... Um, that's my opinion. But I need some data to start with, and if I'm I'm doing this for the first time, I guess I'll just have to use your your experience to say, hey, you know, uh, ninety to ninety five percent of the time, people can clean it to less than a thousand spores per square inch. 
or if it's much cleaner than that to begin with, then um, you know you can take a sample before if the concrete floor was an impact area and there was more growth. That you know um, all the more growth are are there because people when they take them out, they they kind of left them behind right. on the floor. You can take one before and take one after. So also, if from a reference area that people talk about a lot, the indoor reference area sometimes better than outside, you know, outdoor air reference. On the surface, you can also do an indoor reference sample so you know what it's like, you know, to define your normal background. Of course, if normal background is too high and you pay $5,000 for somebody to do the job, usually they can be lower from the normal background. Okay, sure, we can use a number lower than normal background too. Why not? So I could go to a non-complaint area or an, uh, an area where I know there was no mold growth, do a background there, and then mm-hmm. do a sample after they do the remediation, and, and it should certainly be cleaner than that background area or than that non-complaint area, let's say. Um, and then I could start to, yeah, I like that. Okay. I, I think that's something we can play with and uh, work on and see if we can't contribute to that information. Oh, I'm running out of time here, Dr. Tang. I've got to get to okay. another question. What about, uh, let's talk real quickly about cleanup after water damage restoration um, mm-hmm. and the sampling that, that is done after water damage restoration. What do you recommend uh, as far as, um, and I know this varies, but and let's talk about some of the variables. I mean, does the client have the money to do sampling at all? Okay, uh, obviously we're going to make sure it's visually clean. Let's say we've got a uh, a sewage backup, so we've got Category 3 water or flooding. Um, do they have the money to do any sampling at all? We'll start with that. We want it visually clean. Um, if we do sampling, what type of sampling would you recommend following a sewage backup, let's say? Okay, a sewage backup. Um, has two components. It has fecal matter, also water. So let's not forget about the water. The sewage, the fecal matter, at the clean and disinfect, I think that's the objective uh, for the restoration process. After you clean and disinfect, you test for viable uh, E. coli, total coliform, entococcus, and viable total bacteria because the water component might promote bacterial growth other than the fecal origin uh, bacteria. So at the same time, you want to test for total bacteria. We have seen samples that completely clean with no E. coli and endococcus, but it has a lot of other bacteria because the material has been wet and they start to grow a lot of bacteria. So, And if you clean and disinfect properly, you shouldn't see high number of bacteria, viable bacteria in what's there. A, what's a high number? Uh, in a normal residential commercial property, if you can get deep down to 100 or a few hundred per square inch, that's a reasonable to achieve uh, for total bacteria. A lot of people don't want to see anything. They want zero E. coli, zero endococcus. Total coliform is okay. <coughs> Excuse me, you don't have to get it down to zero. But the point is, if you properly disinfect, you shouldn't see too many bacteria that include total coliform. So definitely get zero E. coli and zero endococcus, but total bacteria and total coliform, it's reasonable to expect it to be below 100. But if it's in a less used area, it's difficult to disinfect. 
a few hundred, you know, see if you can talk with the consultant, see what's the need for the, the building usage. So when you're talking a, a total bacteria, can you describe a little more of what the analysis methodology is? Well, total bacteria, it's very easy. Just uh, put it on TSA. And, uh, of course, you do zero dilution, and you put it on TSA. Most of the uh, aerobic viable bacteria from indoor environment can go on that. So you count the number on the dilution, and they calculate back to a number that you 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 have in the original sample. That, that's the easy process. And what? how long is it going to take before we get these results? Uh, for fecal origin bacteria, you can get it in 48 hours. It takes a little bit more time to do a report, but two days, three days is, is definitely possible. Okay. For bacteria, it might wait a little bit longer, but if you have to, you can also read it in, a, in, in, in three days. And two to three days should be. And what what sampling device am I going to use? I mean, you've got the um, the sweep swab and the sponge swab, and, and I guess some people just use the the first-generation swab as well. Um, because... Yeah, Go ahead, John. Well, your, your sweep swab and your, your uh, sponge swab, they're going to pick up more stuff. So um, would your numbers change based on the type of uh, sampling device you use? You know, Joe, that's a very good question. I often got asked of this question. They don't want to use a new swab because they, they, they feel like the number will be different. And uh, my, my reasoning is we are not interested in what your swab can pick up. Uh, we're interested you know, in, on the surface, on the job site, what was left behind. So by saying that, oh, my swab doesn't pick up much, it's really a very bad thing. It's, very, it's, a, it's a big disadvantage. You, know, you are not really uh, see what's left, being left behind in the, in, on the job site. So you have to use the swab, use a high collection efficiency and high capacity. Otherwise, you are not seeing what's really on the job site. You know, nobody cares about what's on the swab. The swab gets sent to a lab and you never see them again. What's left on the floor, that's more important. So from those numbers, they still stay the same. It's just because, because technology and device got improved. You have better way. You see a bigger picture. You see more depth into the, the situation. And nothing has changed. Let me ask real quick, um, with respect to these sampling um, swabs and your, your, your gel tape, are they available just through you, or, or can you buy those through other distributors, and will, um, will other labs have these, or do we have to get them directly from your lab? Uh, well, I try to describe those swabs based on their, the function, the material structure, so you know, if you find a similar swab, you can use that. You don't have to necessarily get it from me. Of course, I say it's important. You have to use a buffer that has no nutrients and has a material on the swab that can do high capacity and have high collection efficiency. And also at the same time, at the same point, there won't be too much liquid left uh, to promote further growth. And, of course, it's always a good idea to send a swab to your lab as soon as possible. So right now you're not you're not um, selling these to other distributors. Basically, you, you've got to we've to get what you're describing on this show. We've got to go to you to get those those materials. Well, now yes, but you know any other people they can come out with uh, 
the same swap with the same principle and maybe even better, which I think would be a good thing to have people have better device because, like I said in the beginning of the show, if you only collect 5% of a sample and send it to a lab, that's all we can analyze. It doesn't matter how good we are. You have 95% lab in the field and you have a lot, some other areas still have 100% of what you think, uh, you know, of the 5%. And you're not really seeing the, uh, you're not getting a good result. If you only, you know, collect 5% of sample, you have 95% left behind, a lot more on the job site. What you collect on a swap, we don't care. We care what's left in the job site. That's more important. So I want to see people have good device. You know, I, I'll be happy if some other come up with better device that can collect 99% of sample. That'll be wonderful. But, I mean, are you trying to get these out to other, like I'll mention, environmental monitoring systems. They sell a lot of supplies. They don't they do not do analysis. They're not a laboratory, but they sell sampling supplies. Have you tried working with them to get them to distribute your product? Well, that's a good thought. I'll certainly um, explore the, the opportunity. Okay, great. Maybe I can uh, get the two of you hooked up there. We'll, we'll see them here in about a month. Um, listen, we, we are running low on time. I want to bring Dr. Dietrich Wow in. We're going to do a roundup. Um, I could, we could spend a whole other show on this way. Um, it's been really great to have you. And uh, are you in a hurry to get out? Can you stick around an extra five minutes or so? I'm here. I'll be here. Great. Let's go to the roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Let's get Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line here. We've got some music for the D- for for Dieter. I'm here. <coughs> oh, hang on, Dieter. Okay. I don't hear it. What happened? We need your intro music. Something something went wrong, Dieter. But we've got That's you. All right, I can play uh, Art Blakey jazz over here. I, <laughs> I you did that one. <laughs> all I, I need it. to do is push one button. It doesn't matter. All right, Dieter. What are your thoughts on the on the show here? I know you've always got some comments and, and a question. I have a couple of questions. I am not. Um, uh, in the forefront of research and so on anymore, particularly in, 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 in mode sampling and so on. I mean, I quote know what I'm doing and I did it this and that way and I know, I know how to calibrate my equipment. But I have one question here for uh, uh, Dr. Tang. Uh, are there, are we now, are we starting to try to standardize our microscopy and I'm asking because I started in microscopy business years ago, 40 years ago, when we looked at asbestos fibers. Yeah. Pretty much the same. There are slight little differences with the size and so on. And at the time when we did it, and I yeah, went to meetings and I talked to people, <clears throat> great microscopists, uh, from Germany, from France, from the United States, from Canada, and everybody had a different method. And of course, my method was, of course, was the best. <laughs> <laughs> As always. 
as always, and um, yeah, finally we standardized this. And you know, I still can count asbestos fibers better today uh, than when I use the, the the new, not so new anymore, NIOSH method. You know, and and you can, and uh, I know laboratories which look at. Um, and mold spores, and some of them, oh, we only use oil immersion a thousand magnification. That, that is fine. I can buy a microscope with a thousand magnification for $150, and I can also buy one that costs $30,000, and I'm, uh, I know all of the above. And uh, yeah, the resolution, of course, makes a huge difference. And I think we are a little bit better off looking at mold spores. I don't know of mold spores, but they can exist, which may be 0.2 micrometers in diameter. I, I don't know. But by and large, the run of the mill, uh, the Cladosporium and friends, uh, they are in that 3, 4, 5 micron. And with a decent microscope, I can see that. Yeah. Do we have... Do we have a standardized, or are there are there moves to come to a standardized uh, um, methodology? Uh, yeah, the ASTM uh, standard covers uh, spore counting. Uh, you mentioned a, a thousand, you know, man yes. magnification. Uh, uh, I don't know how many of the audience um, do um, know about photography. If you use a long lens. Right. The best of focus becomes very small. Oh, of course. It's the same thing with a thousand. You have to move and down your microscope lens. Absolutely. And I mean, Absolutely. I, I did that a thousand uh -huh. times looking at asbestos fibers. Yes. I know. It, it, it takes a lot of time. It probably increases time. If you use 400 to 600 X. Okay. 400x is sufficient for people who are well trained with experience. Okay. For people who are new, it probably needs 600. But even 600, the difference 600 and 400, the field is much smaller, and you have to move up and down quite a lot to see the whole depth. Right. Because right. Because impact on the surface is not on the same plane, focus plane. Some are higher, some are lower, so you have to move up and down. With Correct. Sure. You have to spend a lot, a lot of time to look at it by moving it across the, the trace and also up and down at the same time. So uh, you can have someone to look at a thousand X and for, you know, 25%, 100% traces, but the cost, cost will be very high if you do it properly, okay? If you don't move up and down, then you lose a lot of sport that you don't see. Yeah. But uh, do we do we uh, are we looking at the um, how should I say the performance of the optical system? Again, I can buy I can buy an objective and an eyepiece for a couple of hundred dollars, and I can buy some for a couple of thousand dollars. And the resolution, of course, is mm -hmm. is uh, uh, imperative. And uh, are we are we trying to standardize in that respect? Uh. I I don't remember I've seen this before, but I think most laboratories, if they know what they're doing, they will at least use a, a good microscope. You know, I, I don't want to say this, but, you know, from 1,500 to 2,000, usually you can get a good microscope, a Nikon e Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Score, but don't and fortunately, the price has come down over the last uh -huh. 60 yeah. years. 
don't go any cheaper than that. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. I uh, that, that that is useless. What does the yeah. ASTM standard? What, magnif- that. what magnification is the does the ASTM standard specify? Uh, I think both four hundred and six hundred. Okay. I, on top of my memory, please go look it up if you have a question. Yeah, I don't know the exact no, number either. Yeah. I think you are right in that in uh, in, in that range. Yes. Now, let me ask. Most everybody has a 40x uh, objective. The uh, 63x uh, objective is a little bit more expensive, but it will do the job, no doubt about it. Yes. Let me, let me if you, you if you are well trained and, and have high the uh, qualification, 40x plus 10x on the um, you know, optical, the eyepiece, that give you 400. That should be sufficient. Yeah, well, sure. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm more interested first in the objective and then <laughs> I look at the eyepiece. <laughs> if I can't uh, resolve uh, with the objective, I just, I just get empty magnification. I can get, and in fact, I have 15 and 20x eyepieces, wonderful ones. And I use those for various reasons. But anyway, have another question. Well, there is one weak link we haven't mentioned. And, okay, you get a sample, and it doesn't matter whether it's a sport trap or whether somebody took a sample uh, with the N6 uh, for viable samples and, and, and so on. The weak link is the person, A, who did take the sample, and B, how, how it got to the laboratory. You don't, you know, we have to assume that they did it right. And I have seen horror stories where people uh, said, yeah, oh, yeah, I took that sample, and I took it with 15 liters a minute or one cubic foot per minute, whatever that is, the 28 point something. And I said, how did you, how did you get that? And I said, well, I used it, and I said, this, uh, that that is not right. And I said that's how it will be. How I've been doing it for my whole life. And I said, well, then you have been doing it wrong for your whole life. I know. I know. And I think, yeah, I think it would behoove us. And well, Joe and I are doing that. And when we teach our courses, and sometimes we have time, I said, look, guys, calibrating your equipment is of utmost importance. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and uh, I don't care whether somebody takes a sample for five minutes and two seconds or four minutes and 58 seconds. That is the same if the flow rate is right. And uh, yeah, and I said the laboratory, the error in the laboratory, we are looking at a biological sample. Uh, the error in the laboratory from one operator to another, well, if you are lucky, you get plus or minus 5%, which is fine with me. I have no problem. Yeah, I don't need it, 0.001%. Yeah, I don't need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I've I seen a lot of samples being shipped to uh, laboratories, and they call me and said, Dieter, what do you think about that? And I said, you know, this just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's nearby. I go out and I said, hey, why don't we take a sample? Now, I, I, uh, I calibrate my equipment and I show them how I'm doing it. I said, guys, this is the only way, the right way of doing it. 
They said, oh, that's not how I will be. I said, now let's take a sample. And it's off by two orders of magnitude. And I said, see, that is... (laughs) (laughs) If somebody gets 500 spores uh, per cubic meter or 450 or 550, guys, that is the same to me. (laughs) And now... And, uh, but I think we got to, I think we have to put some emphasis on it. And, uh, yeah, I've been teaching that in the Graduate School of Public Health, my God, for 40 years. And I run sometimes into people, they pick up a pump and they go out and I said, hey, that's how I said, guys, this is not right. So I can't, I can't educate everybody over the, uh, the telephone here. <laughs> no, no. Let me, let me get a final question, uh, Dr. Tang. With respect to sewage and um, cleanup after sewage, uh, we talked before the show about two other methods, and I just wanted to get your thoughts so that you could get them out to the listeners on, first of all, ATP, uh, adenosine triphosphate, as a screening method after sewage. You had a good... Um, analogy on that. I, want, I wanted to get you to com- comment on that and then also on the use of bacteri- bacteroids as an indicator of sewage contamination. All right. First, the ATP, um, if, if there are different parties involved in the, in the restoration, you know, the owner, the, the insurance, and the consultant radiation company, and when there are different parties involved and they could be dispute that it could be a contest, I recommend after using ATP, get a quick, you know, result. You still get a laboratory um, result, you know, by submitting a sample to them because, you know, ATP doesn't kill you. ATP doesn't make you sick. It's a surrogate. It's something that you hopefully have to have 100% correlation with the viable bacteria count, but there are false positive and false negative that can happen. So make sure if the job is important, uh, definitely get a laboratory result because that's a, the, the viable bacteria count. That's a real um, you know, the human health risk. That that's the viable bacteria, not the ATP. I mean, the, the correlation is now is 100 percent. I think and, you compared uh, but, it to um, a pregnancy test almost. Uh, yes, I did. It's a, after you get a pregnancy test, home test, you. You still before you you know tell your boss that you, you're going to you know take some time off. You better go see a, a gynecologist, you know, uh, OBGYN first. You know, make sure you know that the home testing kit, which measure a certain hormone or chemical, correlate to you know you really have a fetus, you know, in, in, in body. So make sure you know know what you're getting a, and make sure how important. Um, I often refer to any decision is about a risk management. Okay, what if it's a false negative? What is a false negative? What kind of impact does it have on you? If there are two people taking samples, you as the ATP, the other guy is the laboratory, you know, viable bacteria count, of course, their sample is going to always trump your data anytime. So make sure you know what you're testing and what do they mean and whether it's important to uh, use this one. I know it's an advantage huge advantage. You can get it, the result right away uh, instead of waiting for two days, three days. But you know, always know that what, what you're testing and what is important to your job. And then with respect to um, using bacteroids as an indicator for sewage contamination, can you comment on that? 
Yeah, I assume you refer to the uh, the DNA method, right? You, you Correct. The DNA for the thyroid. Um, the, the method was originally used by EPA for fresh water, for, for, not, not for, for uh, outdoor water bodies. And uh, once the thyroid got released to the environment, at a certain point, they will be uh, digested, they will be eaten up by protozoa. So they would uh, disappear at the wild. In indoor environment, when it's dry, you know, DNA can be preserved for a very long time. The, the, the thyroid DNA can be preserved for a long time. Just like so many uh, crime scene investigation show we have seen on TV, after a long time, you can still get evidence out and detect the DNA of a, a somebody, a serial killer or something. And I, I often tell people when they ask me about DNA testing, I say, you know, the DNA of a serial killer does not kill you. <laughs> the serial killer, killer kill you, but the DNA he left behind just a, a history, prove a history of certain biological organism has been there in the past. So if, just like I mentioned, if you have to know what you're testing, whether that correlates to a real thing, a viable, you know, fecal origin bacterial, because clean and disinfect and kill the viable, you know, bacterial on the floor, that's your objective. Uh, your job may not necessarily need to clean down to, you know, destroy the cell, break down the cell, break down the DNA, and then break down the DNA to a small fragment that cannot be detected by the DNA method. That's the extra step you, you, extra step you may or may not need for restoration. I mean, if you want to get to that level, you probably need to use bleach, and bleach is probably not the best preferred um you know, disinfectant in the industry, but if you can use bleach and you think you have a need to clean down to a level that by using DNS and the bleach strength doesn't damage your building material, uh, you can put that as a consideration because it does provide uh, the advantage. Uh, it's quick. Um, I don't know how many, how, how much you have to pay for two days turnaround time or quicker, but you can get it very quick if you have the, the money. But I have to, you know, Tell people that you know if you test the DNA, uh, the DNA doesn't cause you know doesn't make you sick. It's a viable bacteria make you sick. Clean and disinfect and do it properly, and if you can show that there's no viable bacteria below a number to a surface, that's all you have to do. And uh, if you have situation you think you need to very clean you know DNA free environment, you know you can think about it. But always do the viable at the same time because. You know, that's the tradition of the gold standard uh, clearance criteria to use a viable bacteria count. Well, thank you for that. I, I, you know, I, we really appreciate getting you on the show um, and, and look forward to talking again in the near future. Uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Dr. Wei Tang for, for joining us today. Had a, a great time and a fascinating show. All right. Thank you, Joe. And uh, by the way, what is your uh, website for the lab, Wei? QLabUSA.com. 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 And I assume they can reach you at uh, at your email there. Is there, is there an email people could catch you at? Yes, please uh, contact us. You can always, you, you, I'm welcome if you have any questions. Most of the, you know, I especially like those challenging questions. So shoot me an email if you have any questions. It's QLabUSA, just one word, .com. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Wei Tang, Dr. Wei Tang. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Joe. 
All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks again to our guest this week. Of course, I want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, my engineer at the controls here, Jessica Lawson. Another another bang up job. Well, we got to figure out what happened to our music today. We we got you got one right. Uh, we got one of the one of the two. Anyway, I also want to say uh, thanks to that growing group of loyal listeners out there. We'll be back, and the Z Man will be back with me here again next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 